Hello, and welcome to the What Type Ones Eat podcast. I'm Daria. I'm Andrew. And we're delighted that you have decided to join us for season two. In this series, we will be speaking to professionals from the diabetic industry, researchers, doctors, dietitians, and people in the public eye. The aim of this podcast is to equip you with strategies based on their research and experience and to help you make the best choices for you to live life to the full with your diabetes. Before we start, we just want to remind you that nothing on this podcast is intended as medical or nutritional advice, and you should always consult your diabetes team before you make any changes to your management. This week's episode is very special. We have Dr. Partha Carr on with us, who is an endocrinologist uh, down in Portsmouth in the UK. But most of all, he is an incredible advocate for type 1 diabetes and any kind of diabetes. He has so much knowledge and is so involved and it's just incredible to listen to what he's been up to and what he's achieved throughout his career. So without further ado, oh boy, let's go listen to this. Hi, Dr. Carr. Uh, How are you doing today? Not too bad. Thank you. Sun's out. Can't complain. We are very happy to have you here today and chat to you about uh, your work in diabetes care. Um, before we kind of go into the nitty gritty stuff, um, could you just introduce yourself to our listener? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is uh, Path Kar. I'm a consultant in diabetes. I've been a consultant for nearly ooh, 13, 14 years, nearly 15 years now. Almost as long as I've been diagnosed. (laughs) And um, what else? I work in Portsmouth, but I've got a national role um, in diabetes uh, and across the board. But obviously, one of my main areas of interest is type 1 diabetes, access, technology, safety, etc. So, yeah, a lot of uh, wide ranging roles at the moment. So, So what got you into diabetes and diabetes care and the advocacy? as such a doctor, because um, it's quite interesting reading your history and where you've come from. Um, We're particularly interested in at what point you decided, you know what, diabetes is my calling. I think it's, uh, I think there's probably two parts to that answer. I think the advocacy I'll come to later. I think falling into the specialty was very much dictated by, I would say, a couple of uh, gentlemen I met during my formative years. One was a consultant who I had the fortune of working with, his name was Tony Zalin, the other one was David Jenkins, they were both in the Midlands, and that was very much my early years, and I'd been around, you know, doing cardiology and gastroenterology and all those others, and I liked the approach they took, they talked about being part of the patient's journey, they were probably some of the most amazing clinicians I'd met, and how they interacted, and it wasn't just about, you know, you saw them, you did something magical, and things got better, it was more about being on the journey, I think that appealed to me, um, and to be fair, I probably am not as skilled as a lot of my colleagues who do lots of the other procedures in that respect. So this seemed like a nice specialty to get into. So that was getting into the specialty. I think the advocacy work started later on. And I've always said that um, the health system is a very interesting one because there's a lot of chatter and a lot of talk about patients being at the center and patient being the voice and patients there. I think it's probably fair to say that that's actually a lot of that is talk, not a lot of that is walk. And you understand that quite quickly. Lots of people, and I've been, as I said, nationally for five years now, I know enough of the system to know that 
you need somebody to champion it also from the inside as much as you can, but be guided by people who have got type one. That's been my approach. So I think once you find the, the position, the best way to make it happen is, to, is by advocacy, but slightly tactically, if that makes sense. So that probably answers that question, I would say. Yeah, um, and well, your work is obviously in improving diabetes care um, as like a very general mm. kind of subject. Um, and what could, could you tell us about the issues that you're, you have tackled that you feel are very important to cover or maybe some that you're working on now and that are quite exciting? So I think for me, diabetes, and I do it broadly, type one, type two, whatever type, let's talk about type one for the purpose of the podcast. I would say that for me, type one diabetes care, if you want to do type one, good type one diabetes care, it hinges on three stools for me, three planks, self-management, peer support, and access to trained professionals, right? That's pretty much it. Now, this is where the NHS is not very brilliant at because it focuses a lot of attention on number three, which is, oh, how can we get you access to trained professionals? Which is a bit difficult thing to do because you don't have enough trained professionals. Plus, even with the best trained professionals in the, in the world, you know, a person living with type 1 diabetes will probably spend, what, one, two hours in their whole year with them at best. So that's about 99.99% of the time on their own. So if you focus a lot more on self-management peer support, you will improve care. That's my principle. So going back to your question, I think a lot of it is dictated by that uh, in the sense, if you look at the work we have done around, let's say, Libra or, you know, CGM in pregnancy or closed loops, for me, they are fundamentals of self-management. You know, it's not about just the evidence. It's about saying, here is a device you can visualize without giving yourself trouble a lot of your readings and you then have the tools to try and deal with it, which is where I think peer support comes in because I think peer support is not used enough by the health system. Uh, there's a lot can of suspicion dive, around. Can we dive a little bit more into peer support? Because mm -hmm. Andrew and I often talk that the, diabe the diabetes community like saved mm -hmm. us. We mm -hmm. basically started yep. managing a lot yep. better when we yep. joined it. Yep. In what sense do you see the peer support and the community actually helping in diabetes care? Is it just knowing someone's there for you or is it actually knowledge sharing? I think you can use an analogy of, let's say you pick a sport, right? You can have somebody who is a coach, right? And you can also have around you players who play the game, right? So they can give you tips, which are little tips, but it makes a massive difference as to how you play or you know if it's cricket, how you bowl the ball, or where you should position the pass in football, whatever. So type 1 diabetes is, you, you know, you live with it day in, day out. So I think it's a little nuances of saying, if you tried that before you went to bed, it might help. Or it's the lived experience side of things, which I think is extremely important. So I don't think it's just about the expert knowledge. It's also about somebody to go like, it's okay to have that. It's okay to have these lows. It's okay to have these mood swings. It's okay some days not to feel great. And somebody who appreciates what you go through, because I think a lot of clinicians, I don't think quite do that. So your clinic appointments tend to be very glucocentric, you know, and it could be as simple as, so the first opening gambit from a clinician tends to be rather than how are you, tends to be how's your diabetes, which is subtle, but it's a big difference. <laughs> right? um, and I think that's a very important part of peer support. Um, there's no judgments, well, there's less judgments at least. So I think peer support is really under-recognized and underplayed. So part of the work that I'm doing right now is trying to build that up across the country because I think that's going to be a fundamental part. And, and I'll finish this particular bit by giving an example is that we have worked a lot on self-management peer support 
uh, and access fine. So if you see during the pandemic, the only type of diabetes where diabetes ketoacidosis has gone down is type one. Type I've two has seen gone the up. Study you yeah. well, you shared on Twitter the other day. And a lot of it is because of peer support. A lot of it. A lot of it is because you're going like, hey, listen, is your Libra, is this, is your technology? And listen, talk to each other and see what you can do. That's a massive role to play in that. I think also people just got a lot more time and that's why they kind of went into the online community. Yep, yep, absolutely. I agree with that. So I think it's under-recognized, underplayed, and there's much more work to be done. If you want to improve type 1 diabetes care, your key sits with self-management, tools, whatever it is, education, how to use technology, how to deal with changes in weather, changes in whatever, and peer support will give you tips along the, along as you go along the way. If you were to grade the support, the technology support that is available to uh, to type ones in the UK, obviously it's it's your area of expertise. Would you, Dario and I have often spoken about how how the CGM is integral, how it's so very important to us and 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 the community that we speak to. That, that is a given across the board. But equally, the pumps to many people are very, very useful and to, and to people that are, that are just being diagnosed, it's very useful. Do you have a preference or would you like that to be available for everybody? So there are two answers. As a clinician, I would like everything on the table to be available to everybody. And I think they should be given all the options and then say, you know, I have lots of patients who will turn around and say, no, that's fine, thank you very much. I'm happy with my insulin injections and my Libra. That will do me. And the others will go like, now nah, I want the whole caboodle. You know, I want it. I want, I want a loop. Give me what's it got going, you know? So you'll have different people, different. I think for me, I would like all the options on the table. So this is why we're working with NICE to create the closed loop pilots that we're doing is towards that end to say, listen, when you get to, for me, when you get to type 1 diabetes diagnosis, you should be given access in my book. And I think we're working towards it. You should be given access to a non-invasive glucose monitoring straight up. Right. Uh, that's my view. And, you know, I think lots of people have challenged me on that. But we are working towards it. Right. That's the, that's the sort of thing. And I think the tr not the trouble. The issue is that's very easy to do in an insurance based system if you can pay for it. In a system like the NHS, where you're cutting across the board and you're depending on others money and you're jostling in a space with mental health and heart problems and cancer, it becomes very tricky to make that. But we're, we're getting there because, you know, as I've always said with Libra, we created a very narrow crisis. And I always said to people, give it, give it time, be patient. It will open up. And it has. We're nearly at 50% of type ones on it. You know, what we created would have got 20% and it will open up further. So I think the, there is a bigger challenge than that. The bigger challenge is, I think, is about people creating artificial barriers to people getting technology. That to me is a bigger barrier to cross. And I go back again to patient power which because it's not strong enough in some places, doesn't quite overcome that hurdle. Yeah, so I think the diabetes community has massively given confidence to a number of people because they see, oh, this person has got a Libre, how do I get one? Like, yep. how do I actually push my um, team to mm. give me one? And I think that's made a big difference. And I guess it's, you've seen that in like studies and um, in like epidemiology where you kind of track people um, getting ones. So that's great. But I wanted to ask what kind of like backlash, is it more financial from the government you're seeing or is it what kind of like 
I think yes. you get it from all. I, I think you get it from all quarters. If I'm honest, Darla. I mean, I think you. Let's start with all the groups. Uh, patients. You get it from patients because when we started off, people will say, "Why just Libra? Did you get paid by Abbott?" And you go like, "Well, not really." The whole point of Libra is to squeeze the other companies to bring their price margins down so that more people get it. And you've seen that. You know, that's what's exactly as is planned. Two years later, that's what happened. That's how market work. So we have that uh, to begin with. Why are you pushing out Libra, why not Dexcom? And I've said, you just need to give it time. This is a longer term strategy. We can't go day one and say, right, everybody needs a Dexcom because it, you know everybody in government would just go like, how much does that cost? And you go like 3 billion and they go like, yeah, no, right? So you need to do it tactically. So I think over the course of time, that's opening up and it will open up further, okay? You get a lot of pushback from specialists. And I think there, th this is where I go back again to patients having a stronger voice. And I've been very public in saying, I'm very happy to support any patient who's having trouble because I think we still are in a very, you know, very hierarchy-based society. It's not easy for patients to go and challenge their clinicians. It's not easy at all, right? So I think when people, for example, recently I've written about it, is that some areas would say, you cannot get a pump till you do a face-to-face -face education with me in my center. Now, nobody actually says that, you know, in the sense NICE doesn't ask for it, we haven't asked for it, but the individual specialists have decided that is the only way they can get a pump. Now, that is a bit unfair because there'll be a lot of people who go like, well, I can't go to see you because it's the middle of my working day and my work is fundamental to me feeding my child. I just can't drop work and go. And the kickback is, but in that case, you don't get a pump. Now that's wrong, right? And I think those bits need to be challenges where we come in as well. So I think there's that backlash. And the third one will come from the people who hold the purse, of course. Whereas the evidence, why are we spending so much money, et cetera, et cetera. So would you mind me asking a bit more and, and, try, and asking you to delve a little bit deeper into the side of the purse? Because obviously being a, a, a chartered accountant, I'm really interested in the data and the evidence and the, and the, and the financial side of it, not specifically to say, um, you know what, we can, we can or we cannot afford this, but I look at this as a, 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 as a kind of, you know, you have to look at this over a very long period of time and maybe the data that you have at present just isn't there. No, it's not that. People know the data. Let's be very honest. If you improve diabetes control, you've got longer term outcomes. That's quite straightforward, right? The problem you have is not with that. The problem you have is in the way the NHS finances are set up, okay? Because if you look at politics and everything, you can't predict how much money is actually coming your way in two years time. So when we, let's give you a very simple example. Let's say for argument, somebody says, everybody, right, needs to be on a Dexcom. Let's just say for argument's sake, all right? That's, let's just say for simple mathematics, 2000 pounds per year, there's 250,000 people, you're straight away talking about, I don't know, 50 million or whatever the sums is. I can't even make the cap or 5 billion, whatever it is, it's a <laughs> lot of money. Now to that, the point is that people say, well, if you did invest that path, right, you will get all the benefit, you recoup the costs of that by improved control and dropping hypos in five years time, right? But you have to invest the money now to do that. And nobody's got the money now. And the only way you can get the money is by taking the money from somebody else, right? And that's where it gets complicated because then people would go like, well, what do you want me to stop then? Do you want me to stop foot care? And you go like, well, no. And that's where it all gets very convoluted. I think it's because of the way the financial streams are done. And I think to me, health budget should be set at 10 to 15 years, especially in long-term conditions. Yep. You upload top front your money, 
if the benefit it will taper off and you get a massive benefit and then you actually are in profit in year six or seven that's the way it should work but it doesn't well yeah that's how business works and that's like how it should be done in a smart way but hmm, unfortunately it isn't um i had another question about pumps so yeah we're talking about the purse we're talking about the people themselves uh in some way the clinicians but what is this thing that you have to have good but well, bad blood sugar control to get a pump? So What's it, that about? Yeah, so I'll tell you what it is. It was what NICE did in 2008, okay? So NICE works on, so it's not really, I'll tell you what it is. Basically, they say you need to have an HB1C more than 8.5%, okay, to basically qualify for a pump. Now, that's not the only reason. I think there's a, 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 a couple of other criteria whereby you can get a pump. Now, I think there's like you can you have to have a lot of lows or you have to have yeah. hypoglycemia, so whatever. 8.5% is the bar. And lots of people would argue it should be much lower. It should be 7.5 or 7%. Why 8.5? Is it not too late at 8.5%? Or are you not saying to the person with diabetes, let your control get worse and then you can get a pump, right? NHS is littered with such examples because of the bar they use in making things cost effective, right? So you have the same problem, let's say bariatric surgery. You have to be this much overweight to get a surgery. When you're going like, no, 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 you should have it much lower at lower end. Why do you want them to be so heavy? It's a bit, you're increasing the risks doing that. So a lot of it is like a tapered approach. So rather than giving it to everybody, we want to taper it down to get to that point. So with Libra, we took that away. If you saw it, there was no HB1C, none. We didn't, we didn't do it. And I think what we are trying to do is nudge nice towards that concept that what you should do is your very simple pathway whereby I say, look, nice, you, what do we say tonight? Look, you've already said good control or complications. You need to be below 7.5% at least, right? If not seven, okay? So why are we not just saying you're diagnosed with type one, you have access to non-invasive glucose monitoring and education, et cetera. If in six months time, you're not really achieving your target, you go to a pump. And if it's still not doing it, let's connect the sensor and the pump together and go to a closed loop. So i.e. you're always trying to hit the numbers around 7.5 or seven. So that takes some time because of the cost effectiveness model to go there. That's the issue. And I think going back to what you said, what Andrew mentioned, this is where we push companies to do the work as well, because without them, we're a bit hamstrung. The problem is, the companies don't necessarily think like that because their market is the United States and the other bigger ones, which doesn't necessarily work on a cost effectiveness model. So it all goes around in circles because of that. Yeah. So since we've covered and briefly touched looping, um, could we go a little bit more into mm. that? So I know you've done some research in that and have been involved in it. Mm. Um, how far where is it now? Like, what's the development stage of looping now? And where do you see it going at the end point? So what do we have? We have got one, two, three, four commercial companies, which have got uh, options now on the table. So Medtronic, uh, Tandem, uh, Dana and Roman Hoverker's work. And Omnipod's coming out, isn't it? Yeah, Omnipod and Horizon's coming. So that's all coming. But at the moment, four commercial options. And what we have done, or we are doing, is we are collecting data about, you know, does it work if you put people on a closed loop if their control is not good? And we're going to give it to NICE uh, probably next February, March. And then hopefully NICE will make their review and decision by July. 
And if they say, yes, it's a goal, then hopefully we'll be able to impl start implementing the pathways. I think that's the plan. That's awesome. Are you confident? I'm always confident, Andrew. Confidence is my middle name. Whether it works or not, I don't know, but confident. Got to be confident. No, I think I'm reasonably confident. I mean, the data that I'm seeing so far, as you'd expect, closed loops are showing huge benefits. Uh, so we shall see what NICE says. I think the cost effectiveness will be the key as to what, again, it's the same, like the pump. Where will they take the A1C, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. Let's see how it goes. Yeah, so do you think in terms of technology of looping, it still requires human factor? Do you think that will continue being so? Or no, I, I think, so we are obviously right now at a hybrid loop where you still need the human uh, intervention i recommend the next two three years will probably go fully automated i think companies are working very hard on it because that's the sort of beyond a cure that's pretty much the you know the holy holy grail if that makes sense to have a completely automated one so yeah I, i'm 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 reasonably confident the companies will come out with it in two three years time and uh, yeah we should be ready for that and since we're talking about a cure, um, I asked the question, asked this question quite a lot um, mm. because I prefer MDI personally. Well, I haven't tried yeah. a pump, yeah. but um, in terms of insulin, I, I've heard about a thing called smart insulin. Yep. Do you think that's coming as well? Or yeah, no, we've seen some prelim work and it looks quite good. looks quite exciting. The concept's very Star Trek. You know, in that sense, nanotechnology goes in, detects insulin, gives you, detects your glucose, gives your insulin. All sounds fantastic. You've got weekly incidents being talked about. So I think those productions are very much in gear uh, as things go. And again, to your point, Dala, I think there's a huge number of people who use MDI and do quite well, right? So if you, if I give you the example of what we have seen with Libra, is that loads of people on MDI have just benefited from knowing what on earth is going on with their glucose, right? And the understanding of the rise, two hours, where does, for example, faster acting insulin fit in, the difference between the meat, all of those have been big, big issues around it. So, yeah. But I think you, the, the, you mentioned it earlier, which is having the options, having the options available is what it all boils down to. One of the things that I've always said about type ones is you've got to be open to change. You've yep. got to be open to try new things. Yep. And yes, yeah, some of them won't work. And actually you mentioned uh, your, um, your uh, Tony Zarlin and you said, you mentioned a journey. Yep. And you know, as a diabetic, you're on a journey and, it, and your requirements will change over time. 100%. So, the fact that you, your Dari is on uh, MDI at the moment does not mean that she'll always be on MDI. Yeah. Just the fact that I'm on a pump at the moment doesn't mean I'll stay on that. I may go back to MDI. Yeah, and I think that's the important bit. And I go back again to the relevance of information, right? So what Dala and you and everybody else out there should have all the information at your access and that open relationship with their professional to say, you know what, I really fancy having a pump now or having a go at it. I just would like to try I think a lot of people don't even know what's available, right? When you say to people, when you meet people and you go like, why haven't you tried a pump? For example, their HbA1c is 9.5% and they go like, a pump. Can I get a pump? And you go like, of course you can. So I think there is a lot of still lack of awareness about what they can have, even by, so just to give you an example, if you just take nicest criteria of 8.5% and people who are in MDI, right? That's who would qualify for a pump, okay? So we did the first type one audit, which has never been done before. We just published all the data on it across the country. 
there's 76,000 people on MDI with an HP1C more than 8.5% who are not on a pump. That's 76,000 people. And you're going like, okay, let's just say for argument's sake, 50% don't want a pump. What about the rest? Why haven't they been given it? Why haven't they asked for it? What is going on? That is most certainly a knowledge gap somewhere in the system, clinicians or patients. And I think that's what we need to close. People are not aware of what they're even eligible for before we make the next jump or what is there. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and I'm going to say that 10% of the NHS's budget is spent on diabetes and diabetes related issues. Yep. 80% of that is on complications, mm -hmm. which is horrific for any for, for me to listen to being diabetic mm -hmm. for 36 years. Mm -hmm. It scares the life out of me, and I'm sure it scares the life out of a lot of people. Do you see that fundamentally changing in the next five to 10 years, whereby we would be spending a lot more money on the tech and a lot less money for the long-term or maybe even the short-term care of people? So I think it's already changing. I think we've invested heavily. I mean, the last few years has been a big shift in technology investment, right? Pregnancy, type one. I think it will continue because I think I always say to people, what, there's a fundamental mistake that people make that when they talk about the NHS, and this is where, why has Libra taken off? It's not because of, oh, device and example and so what is the fundamental difference between Dexcom and Libra? There are two differences. Dexcom, you could argue, you know, till Libra more generations come up, you know, people will swear by it about the accuracy, etc. Libra, a lot of people talk about it, drops off at the lower zones, etc. etc. Right? But why is it more of a blockbuster? Two reasons. One, it's available widely. Primary care see it. So GPs, even though they may not be looking after your diabetes, they were looking at what's that? Oh my god, your blood sugars are far better than it's ever been. And if you think of what Dexcom devices or ILK has been done, it's been shielded by secondary or specialist care completely. It's wrapped. So a GP who's the main carer, who is actually the one who will press the button on flooding it out in the market, has actually no idea because pumps and CGMs are specialist territory, aren't they? It's a bit like hip surgery. And you're going like, oh, it's a bit too fancy for me to get involved in. Well, Libra has become a master. That's number one. And number two, it's a fundamental of not, because if you look at evidence, uh, Abbott's Libra has never had the evidence of improving HbA1c. There isn't a paper, it will show you that in the beginning. But what it does do, it, it does one simple thing. The common word that is used by a lot of people who've never seen technology in their lives, it has been a game changer for me. It's a quality of life metric. I don't have to prick my fingers anymore. Now, lots of people then will go, well, I use a Dexcom. It's much better when you use that. These people have never seen anything, right? So it's, again, that knowledge gap. So I think to your point is that if, and I keep on saying this to companies, if you want to spread it out, you need to have this in primary care citing. Protecting people away from primary care doesn't do any service. So when you see a GP who does your check and they go like, oh, yeah, one sees a bit high. They, oh, but you'll be looked after the hospitals. That's fine. While it should be like, why aren't you on a pump? So, Dr. Carr, can I ask you a follow-up question on that? Mm -hmm. um, let's say they don't know about the actual technology. Well, hooray, they found out about it. They see it, but they have no idea how to use it. Mm -hmm. So how is that problem addressed? So I think this is where education comes in, right? And I don't think it needs to be very traditional face-to-face. -face. This is where peer support comes in a lot. And I think we don't use that. You know, 
if I you asked any of you to go like, Darla, what, what do you want? If you might, if I'm asking you an MDI, do you use what? Do you use a Dexcom or a Libra? I do use a Dexcom, and I right. for if it I saw a person who, yeah. So if I saw a person who says, oh, yeah, I want to use a Dexcom, and I knew you, and I and they were like, oh, I want to see talk to somebody. If I said to you, Darla, would you mind talking to X and teaching them about the Dexcom or giving them an idea? You would do it because you you know all about it, right? You know how to put it on. You show them what it does, what it doesn't do. There's your peer support. Right. So in terms of using it, I mean, more of, you know, like pre saying avoiding the spikes, reading yep. the graphs properly. Yep. Yep. I mean, you can figure out more or less how to put it on and that yep. kind of thing. Yep. Mm. But actual like data analytics, data use. So two things there. One is a lot of the online things that have come out now from the Diabetes Technology Network does tend to sort of push into that where you sit down and go through. So what I, I'll give you an example of what I do in clinic. <clears throat> I say to my patients, want a technology, whether it's a traditional CGM or a, you know, a Libra or whatever. And I say, here are some online modules. Go to them. And three things will happen. There'll be some bits which you go like, this is a bit like sucking eggs. I know this. Why am I doing this? Right? Then the second bit, which you go like, okay, this is interesting. I've never known about this. And then we a third bit, which, I, which they will go like, I can't understand anything of what they're saying. Yeah. And I always say to people, when you get to the third bit, let me know and let's catch up or let's set up a face-to-face -face with a nurse specialist or myself and we'll go through those bits. There'll be some people who will come back and say, actually, I didn't find anything that tough. I'm good. Fine. And what you do is guide them in the first few weeks and say, okay, well, put it on. Let's see where you're struggling. Let's see the data. And then you go like, well, have you tried this? And have you tried that? So I think this is where I talk about fundamentally changing the model of education, which is very traditional at the moment, which is come for five days of education in a room with another groups of people and off you go. Best of luck. I don't think it needs to be more live, right? It needs to be more modern. It needs to be more flexible to the need of the person, right? So that you can be at 10 o'clock at night, you go like, oh, let me just, I can't remember what I needed to do with that level of protein. What was it again? So you can quickly go and have a look. So that's what education, and that we are pushing all the education providers to go into that sort of model to go like, okay, here's a digital program. So what does it mean? What do you, how do you reach out to those who are not digitally savvy? So that's where I would say it needs to be. Doc, do you, do you work with type twos? And the re yeah. th there's two reasons I'm asking. The first mm. one is to find out if you do actually work with type twos. Yes, plenty. And the second thing is obviously there's 90% of the people that are diabetic are type twos. Yep. And I'm wondering about the CGM use and, and uh, BIPOC people with, with type two diabetes, because I'm hearing more and more of people without diabetes wearing CGMs. Yeah, I mean, that's always been a controversial, it was bound to happen. It was bound yeah. to happen because I always look at Apple as your biomarker of what's happening in tech. What was it? A few years ago, they came out with a pulse, right? Then they came out with your heart rate. Glucose was the next thing. It's a big thing, isn't it? What's the world, you know, what, what do people make money on? Diet. Diet advice. Eat leaves, eat this, eat that. So this was bound to happen. I think type 2 diabetes is the evidence base out there that a CGM helps. No. Is there evidence that it may help? in people who are multiple doses of insulin because of their type 2? Possibly, yes. Will it move towards it? I think gradually it will, but I think this is where, again, it goes back to companies having their price index numbers, right? So I think it will, it will go into that field gradually. I also predict a lot of the companies will innovate. You will have, I reckon, 
and this is my guess, slightly cheaper products than the high, absolutely high-end types of CGM to make it more market device. I think that's what will happen. You will have things which are, you know, the top of the range, which do loops and all sorts of gizmo stuff, and then we're a little bit lower, which are more mass devices. And that's where I think it will open up into the type two space. Okay, a lead-on question from from there then is with the um we we've been speaking to other doctors other professors and they've been telling us about lots of type ones that have actually got type twos as type two diabetes as well yep. are you seeing this are you seeing more a, a bigger prevalence for this happening uh, in the last couple of years yeah so basically what we do have so uh, if you look at the national audit for type one one of the biggest factors for poor control or worse control is actually body weight right in type one so i think we have moved away from that narrative of type one is just your slim person now you're both slim you see you fit the narrative you both look slim healthy so you you, you see the narrative there but a lot of type one and i think some of it is also age you know because of modern technology people live longer diagnose longer i've got people who have had type one for 50 60 years so there's that mixed picture that comes in Different communities have got more issues about their, you know, what food they have, et cetera. So weight comes into just like them and they have that mixed picture developing. So obesity is actually one of the factors which makes your type 1 diabetes worse. And that is getting more traction as we go. So we are having a bit of a reversal of type 2. We are starting to see it much more in younger kids. Type 1, we're seeing, seeing more mixed pictures because of body weight. And I think that that's just society changing as it goes along in the modern world. That's interesting. And since we're talking about um, diets and sort of obesity and body weight, hmm. um, in your practice as a clinician, do you recommend any particular way of eating for patients? I guess we should talk about this separately for type one and type two. No, no, no. Um, yeah, you can do it separately or together. So I've got a very fundamental thing, Dal, as far as diet goes, right? All diet lectures, tutorials, teachings forgets one fundamental thing in my book. Sustainability. They talk everything about what you can do now in the next six months of drop weight. You know, I know, if I simply don't eat. Forget, forget all the carb debate for a second. I will lose weight. The trick is not that. The trick oh, is that's true. Up. That's very true. And I think people forget the fun. The best diet in the world is the one that is tolerated because there's no point in having food you hate eating because you won't be able to sustain it. So that's number one. The second one is sustainable. And I keep on saying this to everybody. It's like so people always come to say, "Have you tried this diet on your patients?" And you go like, "Yeah, I could. How do I know they're going to keep on it beyond six months?" And how do you that. even know they're going to keep it now and not tell you they're not actually Correct. doing it? Correct. And the final bit, which is very prevalent in this country, which is why obesity links with that, is that's deprivation, is affordability. It's very easy from a middle-class background to sit down and say, do you know what you should... Don't eat bread in the morning. What you should have is avocado and bacon. And this poor <laughs> mum with four kids is looking at you going like, what does that even mean? All I can afford is bread and butter in the morning for my kids, right? So when you go into McDonald's, you can see what you can get for a pound 50. So I think that's what a lot of the nutritional gurus and tutorials forget. So to me, I always talk about diet. People come to me and say, I want to try low carbs. And you go like, brilliant. Do you know what you go. Need? Yeah. And I go like, fantastic. Do you know what you need to do to keep yourself safe? 
And they go, like, what do you mean? I said, well, your glucose spikes, basal insulin, da da da. Keep an eye. This is what you need to bolus. And they go, all right. Then eight out of 10 will come back six months later and go, like, God, that was a bit tough. Or they will say, tried that and then really like my cake because I got bored. I really wanted a cake. Now, or, and there will be some people in there who will go, like, no, I'm still on it. I'm still going. It needs a lot of self-motivation to stick to a low-carb diet, especially in the world we have all around us, right? So I think that's what I say about nutrition. Everything goes. Quite, on, quite honestly, it takes a lot of motivation to keep on any diet or oh, whatever well, it is. That's why, that's why all studies tell you that. All studies, low-carb studies, low-calorie studies. And I have no idea why people have this amazing fight between themselves. It's like as if there's a prize to have the best diet in the world and you go like well it doesn't really matter if you can't have it after three months what's the what's the point so yeah and unfortunately like coming back to the t1d community there is a lot of kind of clashing of diets and like different things but yeah i think as long as it's sustainable for you as long as you're not pushing it on anyone exactly feel free to do it you do you that's what i keep on saying to people you know, my job as a clinician is to give you advice which keeps you safe. Is low carbs unsafe? No. Is low calories unsafe? No. Just know what you need to do with your insulin so you don't end up having a hypo and getting ill. And best of luck with sustaining it, right? You know, because we're all doing the same thing. We want to improve your HbA1c. I'm not in a fight to stop you from lowering your A1c. I just want you to do it safely. So, great. Doc, we, obviously diabetes has been uh, documented as being a pandemic and mm. um, there's ever-increasing numbers of people that are being diagnosed. And whilst we've, we've done it again tonight, we, we've spoken a lot about managing the symptoms and for very good reason. But do you think that the cause has been somewhat lost? Uh, I'm, and I guess I'm speaking more on type 2s than type 1s in this respect. But do you see the the sort of discussions about insulin sensitivity changing over time? And, and how would you see that those kind of discussions happening? So I would probably see it slightly differently because I think five years ago, we wouldn't talk about reversing type 2 diabetes to putting into remission. That wasn't on the cards. We've got research now to say that certain diets can do it. So I think that's certainly you've got a national type 2 diabetes prevention program. Those were not there five, seven years ago. So I think that's a positive thing. I think, however, it doesn't tackle the root of the problem, if I'm very honest, which is the environment we have all around us, the issues of deprivation and people can't, those are your biggest drivers, right? Around, uh, or for example, cultural differences, you know, differences in community as to what they feel is the right thing. So if, for example, you come to a Southeast Asian community, like an Indian community, you know, if I, for example, go to a go to a religious festival and I'm not eating sweets from the morning till the evening, I am actually being disrespectful to them. So how do you cut across that in generations and say, no, 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 this is for your health, right? And that's a, so. I don't think people have actually tackled those. While there's been a lot of focus on we'll tax this and tax that, and you go and like, we'll put some calories on your food restaurant things, and you go like, okay, that, but you're just doing the margins. You're trying to make what I say, the good, a bit better. That's all you've done. The affluent, white, let's say, middle-class woman, man, who can afford anyway, has gone to a restaurant, and a nice fancy restaurant, and now can see their carbs. Well, brilliant. So they have just tweaked it a little bit more and got a bit better. How, how does that help society? It doesn't. So that's the issue I have. 
I mean, I'm guessing they're still going on to like McDonald's and the KFC menus as well, which yep. may or may not be helpful. But again, it's about the whole food environment oh, rather 100%. 100%. than um, the little parts of it. Um, I was wondering, so we've been studying in my degree a bit about doing different di- dietary interventions. Yeah. Uh, at what ages do you see these interventions being most helpful in terms of diet? So I think there is a degree of caution that I hear from pediatricians about too much dietary changes too early on because nobody's quite sure about what impact it has on growth, bone development, etc. So you can see a lot of pediatricians get very nervous when people talk about going really low carb with children. And I can appreciate that. I'm not a pediatrician. I don't know the science. So I always hear about the nervousness from them. In adults, however, I think it depends as to what point you catch them. I don't think there's a right or wrong time. I think it's about motivation. I find a lot of that is about when they're ready to make the change is probably a big thing. There's a lot of school of thought which says, and I think that will be quite interesting to see by measuring, you know, insulin resistance or islet cell capacity is to say that, let's say somebody's had type 2 diabetes for 21 years. Is it worth or are we wasting our time? Can you change the parameters of the insulin resistance? I don't know the answer. I suspect the answer would be with the weight loss, you will make some change. You'll definitely make some gains. Uh, It would be unscientific not to. But a lot of the focus on remission, et cetera, is in the early stages of diabetes. But we don't know enough about the beta cell regeneration. We don't know enough about what is exactly going on with the Do you? Do you do that? Because that would be fantastic if you could show that. I I mean, at the end of the day, there is now beta cell transplantation. So that can play a role in it as well as a person loses weight. Maybe the new newly like implanted beta cells will kind of live. I think the problem with the transplant is the anti-rejection drugs you need to take with it. That's the problem. So you open up another complete kettle of fish until that goes away. That becomes slightly tricky. But yeah, I mean, science is science. And I think, you know, you're all doing your science work. We just look forward to it. Honest. Yeah, and is that like the um, anti-rejection drugs? They are needed even if it's just the cells, if it's not an in- a complete organ. As far as I'm aware, yes, because if you okay. look at islet cell transplants that they do in type one diabetes, right, for severe hypos, we're not getting anywhere, and you do that, they they do need to take a fair bit of anti-rejection cocktails at that stage. Yeah, that's not fun, not no, at all. Definitely not. So on that, um, what research are you involved in at the moment? Are you involved in any research at all? So to an extent, yes. I think I'm very much uh, interested in looking into the whole behavioral science and around peer support, that sort of side of things I'm very interested in. Because I just want to explore that more to see what we can do as a health system. There is a degree of reluctance from also clinicians about what peer support has. And what I say to people is that if you can't do it because of work pressures or lack of staff, then somebody has to. So why are we not using people who live with it, right? Uh, so I think that's an area I'm quite fascinated in looking into, for example, recently we published a paper on what are the trends on social media for people with type 1 and type 2? What are the topics? You know, And I think it's interesting to see, it doesn't matter what type you have, diet is still really top for all types of diabetes. And I think that's also changing that narrative that, oh, type one diabetes are just all fit and thin people. Diet is not an issue for them. Diet is a big issue for them. So I think things like that, I think they're quite intriguing and interesting and they help shape the policy work that I do. That's great. Um, 
So I know you have your own blogs and podcasts and mm. social media. Could you tell us where to find you and where could our listeners find you? Yeah, so I mean, I obviously am social media, Twitter, I use quite a lot, Facebook, I use a lot um, on Instagram from time to time, not that much. I write my own blog, which is nhssugardoc.com. Um, which is in, on Blogspot, and I write used to write much more regularly. But I write a BMJ, a British Medical Journal column on different things. I do a podcast, which is called Sweet Talking, from time to time when I find a topic to talk about with somebody. Uh, but yeah, so a mixture of stuff. I think it's all about uh, exposure. It's all about uh, raising the profile. So you know, in modern day and age, I think you know a lot of people say, as a clinician, should you be doing it? I think I 100% should. It's all part of the advocacy work. It's all part of raising the profile, and nothing wrong in it. So yeah. Is all the TAD talks still going on? Yeah, no, we're going to restart it. Um, so obviously we've had to hold it off, but next year we'll be doing it again. Uh, we've got a date and we're going to do it 19th of March, all staying well. Uh, we will um, get some good speakers. We'll do it the same way. I don't know whether you've ever been to any one of those, but uh, if you haven't, um, we'll try and see if we can sort you guys out to come along, which would be great to also meet you. Uh, that would be absolutely lovely. Yeah. So, and then, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's just, I think the talks are the talks, but I think for me, the best bits are the intermingling between people and, you know, getting to know each other. It's quite good fun. It's good, good fun events. So, yeah. Can, can you let the listeners know what TAD Talks are? Because, yeah, because I just said the word and they, they're probably listening thinking, I've never heard of that. Yeah. So TAD, basically, some of you must have heard of TED Talks, which are little small inspirational talks done by people of background repute, celebrities, politicians, etc., social media influencers. So what the idea was that we would get a few people with type 1 diabetes to talk very short talks about their lives. And we had a mixture of people. We have had politicians, we have had uh, actors, we have had people who are just people, right? And that, that has involved a mum, that has involved somebody who has struggled with uh, her uh, you know, mental health, etc. somebody who's just a pilot uh, and all those things. And it's just fascinating to listen to all those stories from different angles. And we do it, uh, we have done it for five years or four years, and it's all there. It's on a website. If you want to listen to those talks, they're all about six, seven, eight minutes long. Quite inspirational, some of them, uh, admittedly, just hearing about their journeys and what they've done with their type. And I think it's about showing to the world that you can do anything with type 1 diabetes, which is what I keep on saying. There's no barrier. There shouldn't be any barrier. Um, so, and you have an audience, and we all mingle with each other. We have lunch together. We listen to those talks. We have... Um, bit of a children's event as well so it's a nice it's a nice fun day out uh with everybody from the type one community and uh it's been something i've been quite proud of uh creating so with uh, some of my fellow colleagues so it's been good good fun you should be proud of it it's it, it is amazing and and absolutely without a shadow of a doubt that's only going to help with the peer support isn't it 100 percent. i think that's always been the intent I, and you can say going back to dala's question that's been part of my you could say research you know trying to see that seeing that it's quite important and you get to realize that it's not just it's not clinicians we need in this space this is what we need people helping each other out talking to each other that's the important bit yeah often it's just the inspiration that you need from others yep. Yep. dr carr thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to talk about all your work all your incredible work that is helping the type one community and the type two community at the moment it's a pleasure. It's a job. It's not a problem at all. It's always good fun, you know. It doesn't sound like a job, to be honest. 
No, I mean, I've got a very simplistic view about this. You know, I get paid, I do a job, I, I uh, give, I will give 100% in my job. But when my job is done, I also go on, you know, enjoy my whiskeys and enjoy my food and enjoy socializing. I do all of that. And I enjoy watching my Marvel movies. Last night I was watching Shang-Chi. So, you know, they're all there, a big part of my life. So, but, but when I do what I do, I'll give it 100%. So at least, you know what, I always said that when I, when I wrap up, I don't want to look back and say I could have, you know, given more. So at least I need to look back and be happy that I gave it my 100%. So that's important for me. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for appearing. It's been great. Oh, what an episode. We both absolutely loved chatting to Dr. Carr. And we think everybody should check out what he is up to, what he's doing. We will leave everywhere where you can find him which is twitter and his blog and his podcast in the show notes and please do check them out they are incredible work if you would also like to find us you can find andrew at t1d underscore one life and daria at t1 level underscore daria and also at www.t1leveldaria.com If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in your podcast app and leave us a review. It really helps with the podcast getting out there and reaching more people. We hope you join us next week for the next episode.